Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Latina shared the spotlight at last week's presidential inauguration with Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor swearing in Vice President Kamala Harris, followed by Jennifer Lopez's bilingual medley of patriotic songs. Here in Massachusetts, demands for Governor Charlie Baker to prioritize COVID-19 vaccinations for Latino communities where the virus is widespread. And local Latinx leaders see opportunities in open positions for state rep and Boston mayor up for grabs. That and more on our Latinx Roundtable. Later in the show, at a time when our nation grapples with the ugliness of racism, one husband and wife duo aim to spread the power of Black beauty. We really try to make it something that kids will really just pick up on because they can look on our Instagram and they can see these really cool photos of Black kids and say, hey, you know, I want to look like that too. (laughs) Um, And that's something that we really haven't seen before. So many times it's been, you have to have your hair straightened or you have to have a certain skin tone. We're, We're wanting them to be able to see an alternate version of what's been put out in the media so far. Glory, Magical Visions of Black Beauty features over 100 images of Black children and celebrates the styles of Black hair worldwide. But first, joining me remotely, Julio Ricardo Varela, digital editor for the Futuro Media Group, co-host of the In the Thick podcast and founder of Latina Rebels. Welcome back, Julio. Hey, Callie. And Marcella Garcia, editorial writer, columnist, and board member at the Boston Globe. Hello, Marcella. Hi, Callie. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad to have both of you back. Uh, let's start with some you know, grim news, and that's the coronavirus. All of the reports are that the numbers in Latino communities, wherever you are, that includes Massachusetts, and that is for sure in Los Angeles, where the virus is just overtaken uh, all of the healthcare systems. But yet, there still does not seem to be enough support, treatment, attention paid to the gap. So a couple of things. I want to talk about how this gap is widening. And I really want to talk about the demand, a letter sent to Governor Baker to prioritize vaccine access for uh, Latino communities and Black communities and get your take on both. I'll start with you, Marcella. Yeah, on the local side in Massachusetts, there's been so much pressure, I suppose, you mentioned the letter, on the Baker administration to prioritize the hardest hit communities. And and frankly, I'm not holding my breath for that. This is not me being cynical just for the sake of being cynical, but the Baker administration has been, let's say, a little slow to recognize the conditions right on the ground, uh, especially communities like Chelsea, Lawrence, you know, Brockton, New Bedford. Black and Latino communities where absolutely the virus hit the hardest, right? You know, we have this three-phase sort of plan, right? And in, in the priorities, essential workers, 
and then people with comorbidities and et cetera, et cetera. You go down the line, you get to teachers. I mean, teachers, by the way, are also asking for for an earlier place in the line. And so it's not just Black and Latino right. communities that are calling for for more priority. It's also teachers, you know, who are going to start coming back to the classroom. And so you got to, you know, at some point, like I, I, on, on one hand, I understand the Baker administration that you do have to put people in line. Like that is just the reality of it, right? And, and absolutely, there is an argument to be made that Black and Latino communities deserve it earlier. I just hope that when we get to our place in the line, it's not going to become an access issue because that's the other thing, right? Like mm. just the other day, I was talking about someone, actually a Latino person here in the Boston area. And I was, we were chatting. He's like, I got to run. I have to go I have to do a test, a COVID test. And I'm like, oh, what happened? I hope you're okay. He's like, oh no, I'm very paranoid. This is like my, you know, I don't know, 15, 20th test. And I'm like, what? You've been tested like wow. 20 times? Wow. And, you know, good for him, right? Because I, I, I know that some people are being more exposed than others. And But that made me think about right. who's getting tested, where is and the access, right. and who's not. And, and right. the vaccine, you know that the vaccine situation is just going to exacerbate access. And so, again, at this point, I'm more worried about access than, you know, getting to them earlier. Because even when we get there, I want to make sure that people uh, are getting vaccinated, you know, when they when when it's their place in the line. So, Julio, the authors of this MLK Day letter are all medical professionals. I want people to understand. So these are medical professionals saying there needs to be a prioritizing of these, uh, quote unquote, hot spot communities, because, as we know, if you don't really go right to the heart of the matter, you have less of a chance to reduce the spread of virus overall. I mean, so it is really a community. It should be a community response. And by the way, Julio, um, this piece in The Globe points out that Rhode Island is already doing that. They've made the decision to go to the. So what's your take? It's funny. You you know, I think about Marcella's column from the Boston Globe when she was talking about Chelsea last March. I did a, a piece for Latino USA about Chelsea last March. And guess what? These communities are still suffering. And it's always been like that. And I, I think it comes down to not only access, it's it really is a question of voice and representation. Because mm. I'll mm. sit back and say this. It's like when you have a predominantly white media, which is that is the truth, and you don't have voices that can scream that can write columns in national outlets all over the place to say that this is about black and brown communities, especially in the Boston area, you don't get that narrative. I'm struck by this quote in that Boston Globe piece that Baker said, where he's like, there's no doubt about it. Black and brown communities have borne the brunt of the virus. And then he says, our, administra- our administration's response to the pandemic has been constantly mindful of this reality. I would seriously challenge that as a journalist. I think the Baker administration has backed into this realization because at the start of this pandemic, I I felt like it was a very privileged look into this crisis. And black and brown communities, immigrant communities in the Commonwealth have been screaming this out. And I feel like it's finally caught up, but it's still to me not enough. You know, so I, I feel like the Baker administration missed dropped the ball on this one. Well, I mean, there is an opportunity to you know, make some adjustments now that there is a new administration. The Biden administration says its big focus is really on the distribution of the vaccine and also making sure that testing is amped up and 
all of that, so we'll see. But just as a medical fact, it won't matter if all the other people who were in line first, but not in these hotspot communities, got vaccinated because you will not reach herd immunity until everybody is. So let's move on to looking at what's happening now that we have a new president. So President Biden's first acts were focused on some immigration issues. Well, first of all, let's talk about his pick for the Department of Homeland Security. His name is Alejandro Mayorkas, and he would be the first Latino in that position. As of this moment, Senator Josh Hawley has said he is going to block his approval by the Senate, if he can, because of the immigration policies, specifically DACA. So Alejandro Mayorkas as Biden's pick for DHS head. What about that, Julio? He's someone from the Obama administration, was part of the citizenship agency back in the day. He's very well respected in the immigrant rights, um, immigrant, you know, community, uh, advocacy community. But I do think there's questions about remnants of the Obama administration coming with immigration with Biden, although on his first day in office, Biden says, I'm going to bet big on immigration, so I'm going to send a bill to Congress. And I don't want to get into the weeds of the bill, but basically the biggest takeaway is an eight-year path to citizenship for anyone that does not have legal status from January 1st of this year or previously and is physically present in this country. It's getting some applause from immigrant rights activists because it's, quote-unquote, the most, and and I put this in quotes, the most progressive bill, comprehensive immigration bill ever presented. What's interesting of the last couple of days is when you look at DHS, and I know Mallorca, as of, as of we're recording, he hasn't been confirmed yet, they're still kind of sending mixed messages. One, uh, the Remain in Mexico policy, they sent a memo um, the first day in office saying, hey, we're not accepting any more people in the Remain in Mexico program, meaning that, you know, asylum seekers have to remain in Mexico to wait, you know, and just kind of wait. So that's number one. Number two, you know, Biden did make a big campaign promise on moratorium for deportations. And DHS issued out a statement again on the first day of office saying that we're going to put a pause on deportations except for, you know, terrorists. There's another graph in that that says, oh, by the way, we reserve the right to really much deport anyone. So I really don't know what's going on. It's still a lot of mixed messages and... and so, too many caveats for you at this moment. Oh, always. Because when you look at the history of immigration reform, it's filled with caveats. Right. I mean, well, that's true. here we go again. Um, Marcella, what do you think about both the proposed immigration laws and Alejandro Mayorkas as uh, head of DHS? So the, um, his appointment... I mean, yeah, I do believe it was it was kind of historic. It, it all comes down to what he's going to be, you know, once he gets confirmed, because I think he is someone that is re- somewhat respected in the uh, advocacy community, in the immigrant advocacy community. He did a lot of work with the original DACA, you know, the, the program that allowed dreamers to stay. Right. Uh, so on the immigration, I, I don't necessarily think that it's dead on arrival. It is going to be an uphill battle for sure. And there is a reason to be skeptic because this has been decades in the making. Yes, it is the most comprehensive overhaul 
of immigration system since the Reagan administration, which indeed was amnesty, essentially, right, which has been hailed as, you know, sort of a like gold standard, right, because of what it did. You know, it literally legalized millions of people. So here we are again. Yes, it's full of caveats, blah, 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 but at least they did it. I, I know that it's a very low bar. I thought this was a very small but overdue change included in the, in this bill. It changes the word alien in all of the immigration's law mm. to non-citizen. Yes. Again, a That's very a small change, a very small change, perhaps non-consequential, you know, practically speaking, but as a matter of shifting Yes, yeah, that's, that's in big tone, deal. it's monumental, right? Yeah. To be able to not have in an immigration laws the word alien, that's major. So again, I, I would give him credit for that. Small change doesn't really mean a lot, but but it kind of does at the same time. Kelly, one last thing about this. Looking back at history, that 2008 period when Democrats were kind of in charge, that's when it should have happened. And we, we feel like, you know, that's the question I have is like, is Joe Biden 12 years too late to this? Well, I would just say that somewhere in those years, there was actually some movement toward a comprehensive bill with that group of eight people. Now, that wasn't going to turn out great for everybody, but they were working and they were far apart initially and they had come together and then other forces put a kibosh on it. So that would suggest that there could be possibly some movement. We'll see what happens. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with our Latinx Roundtable guests, Julio Ricardo Varela of the Futuro Media Group and Marcella Garcia of the Boston Globe. Now, one of the reasons why it might be different in the Senate this time is because some of the people in the Senate are different. And I'm speaking of one Alex Padilla, who is now a senator in California. Um, He was appointed by uh, Governor Gavin Newsom to replace then-Senator, now-Vice President uh, Kamala Harris. Let's take a listen to Governor Newsom telling the former California Secretary of State, Alex Padilla, that he was going to give him that slot. And what your mom and dad came from Mexico. Yeah, the story I'm proud of. But uh, yeah, they fell in love and applied for green cards. Can you imagine what mom would be thinking now as I ask you if you want to be the next U.S. Senator of the United States? You serious? This is the official, this is the ask, brother. I'm honored, man. And I'm humbled. I can't tell you how many pancakes my dad flipped trying to provide for us in the many, many years of my mom cleaning houses, doing the same thing. So I, I try so hard to make sure that our democracy is as inclusive to help an important perspective to bring to Washington. You're going to have that chance, Alex. You want to, you got to say yes, though, man. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So he was sworn in yesterday in an historic moment. Vice President Kamala Harris swore him in into her old position. Um, he's quite well thought of. He's uh, MIT trained engineer, um, and he's a very serious uh, Angelino. I'm told. And one other thing I learned about him in the last few days is that he is from the community in Los Angeles that is the hardest hit for the coronavirus. So he's very serious about you know what his mandate is uh, as a senator. Very moving. Very moving indeed. I you know it's like. I felt like when uh, you have you see a wedding proposal, like you know someone mm. giving someone an engagement ring, they're not saying yes, but they're crying. And he and so Gavin Newsom kept saying, "You have to say yes, man." It's so moving. I mean, honestly, that video just gives the, the the sound of it, just the sound of it, gives me chills. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's it's huge indeed. And I was kind of getting worried. Gavin Newsom was just taking so long in making this appointment, right? And he had given yep. his word to some Latino groups who were who had been lobbying him, had lobbied him for on behalf of Alex Padilla. And at the end, uh, there was this push towards you know, no, that's a black woman seats. You have to name a black woman. And I was really getting worried that we were going to have this tension, you know, black versus Latino. And so it was just, I, I, I was sort of bracing myself for that, but ultimately Gavin Newsom went for Alex Padilla because either way it would have been historic. To, you know, I, I do think it's important to see politicians as humans, as human beings sometimes. I think we put them on a pedestal and think like they're imperfect and have no emotions. And that was a real moment. And I think Padilla is a great pick. And I do think what you're going to see in California and even parts of the Southwest um, you're going to see more and more. These are going to become more common stories. You're going to have more Latino and Latina senators showing up from Arizona, from New Mexico, from Colorado to join people like, you know, Cortez Masto in, in Nevada and and Padilla in California. This is just the beginning. Well, from your lips to God's ears and to the sleeping giant, apparently, which is awakened, uh, according to the UCLA study. There's a record 16.6 million U.S. Latinos voted in the 2020 election. And a lot of people will be surprised to learn, I think, that they made a difference in Georgia. So before you two weigh in, here's a Spanglish version of Georgia on My Mind performed by Las Cafeteras, <laughs> which aimed to get the state's Latino residents moving to vote in the Senate runoff elections. Georgia and me Gotta say, um, if the AKAs were strolling to the polls, there were some other people that were dancing to the polls. That's pretty catchy. (laughs) But it's a very serious thing. And we say the sleeping giant for people who have not heard that expression before for decades now. uh, That's been referred to the Latino vote. And the question was, every big election, will the sleeping giant wake up? Looks like totally woke. What do you say, Marcella? Well, first of all, can we retire the phrase sleeping giant? And, and, <laughs> and not because of the reasons you may think. Let me just say this real quick, because this is a pet peeve of mine. The, you see, and, and I'm guilty of this. Of course, I use this metaphor so many times, um, I, you know, feel kind of embarrassed. But I will say this. The reason why it's such a problematic metaphor to call it the sleeping giant is because it puts the onus on the Latinos who were just asleep, sleep at the wheel, right? Like, oh, we don't want to go to the polls, whatever. Like, we don't want to, you know. But, but it was about someone or the parties awakening them, right? And so That's calling right. them the sleeping giant was like, they are asleep, you know? Like, they need to wake up as opposed to, no, we need to engage them. And, and that's yeah, exactly what we saw in this past yeah. year, right? Like, However, you even starting with the you know with with the Latinos con, Ber, con Bernie and Theo Bernie and, and all of that campaign did an amazing job engaging and prioritizing and energizing Latinos, right? And so then the Biden the the Biden campaign, blah blah blah, Georgia, you know, it's about campaigns reaching out to this constituency. To me, the bottom line is that it proves that when you invest in Latinos in a meaningful way, not just one time piecemeal. 
you know, they we have proven that we can go to the polls too, and we, we can participate in the political process if you know you tell us what's in it for us as well. Right. And Julio, it also shows you can make or break a campaign because there are two senators uh, from Georgia who would not be there were it not for the edge that was provided to them, not only by black voter turnout, which we have established was huge, but also by the huge Latino voter turnout. Yeah. And I I just want to you mentioned the record turnout. Just want to call attention to the story that I filed for Latino rebels um, last week. Uh, There is a really geeky data heavy study by the UCLA Latino Policy and Politics Initiative that actually looks at precincts like Latino, uh, you know, uh, what do I say, like high propensity Latino districts, low propensity ones, and really looks at about 13 states, most of them battleground states. And that's where this this, uh, estimate of 16.6 million Latino voters came out in 2020. It's a 30.9% increase from 2016 and I actually talked to the the studies authors on Latino Rebels, um, and it gets really geeky and it's really good. And people like Five Thirty Eight and uh, Upshot should look at these things because it's really good data. But let me just share this one example because you mentioned Georgia, and I I was fascinated by this finding uh, about the twenty twenty election uh, between Biden and Trump. Um, even though in high, they said in high concentrations of Latino uh, districts. Uh, where it's 30 percent or higher, it was leaning about 60 to 40 percent Biden over Trump. But in districts where there were less than 2.5 Latino voters in like actually in, in in places where there's a large concentration of of black voters in Georgia, it was close to 80 percent of registered voters in those districts voted for Biden, which kind of talks about this multiracial, multi multi-ethnic coalition that happened in Georgia that I think is one of the greatest stories of 2020 and here we are in georgia where it is it's becoming more and more latino in a lot of ways uh it's a growing population but it seemed you know there was a lot of solidarity because of black organizers because of black women organizers because of latino organizers that saw the black tradition of organizing in georgia and the data is proving it in a lot of ways and if you really want to inform yourselves Look at this study because this is an all Latino researchers. Sonia Diaz heads it up. She is so smart. And this is again, it comes it comes down to representation and understanding the community. And we need to elevate data studies like this as a community and as journalists, because it has to counter that narrative that is a little bit misinformed. Well, I think um, this is going to be referred to quite a bit because 30.9% increase is huge. And you saw that around in many places. So I believe uh, you've gotten their attention or UCLA, UCLA has gotten their attention. I want to say to connect that then locally and take a look at a couple of uh, open positions that we have that there are Latinx candidates, uh, potentially. John Santiago is saying, Marcella, according to a piece that you wrote, he's a state legislator and emergency room physician at Boston Medical Center, thinking about maybe making a run for mayor, and lots of people are excited about it. And then this other gentleman, Juan Caramillo, has announced his run for a state representative uh, to succeed House Speaker Robert DeLeo in the 19th Suffolk District. I'm not familiar with him at all, but 
but he's definitely uh, from the community based on this piece from the Revere Journal. And lots of people are excited about him. But that would, you know, exponentially <laughs> step up the the numbers of, of Latinx leadership roles uh, in Massachusetts. Yeah. I mean, the next few months are going to be very interesting in Massachusetts politics, in Boston politics, of course. But just in general, mm. there are a few open seats uh, and, and the one left open by the Leo, the former House Speaker. It's interesting, again, because we get into the it's going to be a special election, you know, which tend to favor political insiders and just, you know, create barriers for people of color to run. But Juan Caramillo is, interest, is an interesting case because, as you saw from that profile, he started as a janitor at MGH. And then, you know, making yeah. his way through the state legislature, he was an intern and then he worked with, with another uh, legislature. And so now he's a candidate. And so he was positioned to to do this. Right. And then moving to the Boston mayoral race is going to be a huge, huge push to elect the first black mayor of Boston, which I think is long overdue. And everyone recognizes that, as you know, there are mm-hmm. two women already running, Michelle Wu and Drake Campbell, who's black. And nobody else has jumped in yet. Everyone's still sort of like, you know, watching, I hope, and, and I think John will run, John Santiago. And, and I'm thinking, does the Black community want a Black mayor? And not just the Black community. There are a lot of white progressives in Boston who are very keen on electing a Black mayor for obviously the right reasons. But I worry that that push is going to maybe take us to a place where we end up like with Willie Gross. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, well, thank you. Thank you. There you go. <laughs> There you go. So is a Black person the only one who can represent the Black community in Boston? Of course not, right? But but that's a, a very hard argument to make when you're, when you're talking about diversity of people of color. And the one thing I would say about John is that he's hard working, he's at an ER position. Everybody, like everybody that you talk to about him is incredibly impressed with his energy, his work ethic, but also about his ability to transcend identity politics as well. And so that makes me hopeful that he can you know, because he has a lot of powerful, you know, supporters in, in the, within the Black community as well. And so I'm hoping that, you know, the next mayor is going to be someone who can represent all of us and elevate the Black community and the Latino community and the Asian American community. Like those things are not at odds with each other. We can do both things. And, and so I, I, I'm just afraid that because we're going to be focusing so much on it's time for a Black mayor, we're going to lose sight of these other things that are important to in the city as well. Um, and, you know, again, the best example of why, you know, it doesn't have to be a black person is Willie Gross, because he does absolutely not represent or wouldn't represent. Willie Gross is the, uh, you know, first black police commissioner who's thinking about running as well. Right. And, and you and I know, Callie, and you too, Julio, he would not absolutely represent the best interest of the black, com- of black community in Boston. Well, I want to be clear about my response is that what you're talking about, which is a little scary for me, is 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 portending a bloodbath um, over this. Uh, and that that was that was my response. Uh, so I'm... That's, I'm scared a little bit too. And because I don't want that I, to I've happen. Seen yes. I've seen it. I've, I've seen, seen the, that happen the too. ugliness on Twitter. And, and yes, we know that Twitter is not a real representation of, of real life, but but I'm, I'm a little scared about that. I think those are valid concerns. I'm, I'm a little concerned about it. Julio, you want to add something? Yeah, I, I know. I I get what what uh, Marcel is saying in a lot of ways. I also think that these are good problems um, for the city mm. of Boston. Well, because, you know what? That's because, a really important point. Yeah, because I think mm-hmm. we haven't. I would love. I would love to have a conversation with diverse candidates in Boston and just kind of show that 
every candidate that's running is actually <laughs> not a white person. Let's start there, right? And I think like the bigger picture of trying to change the narrative of what Boston has been and what it can become. Yeah, what if we had, you know, an Asian woman, a black woman, a Puerto Rican doctor, um, a black man and, you know, and nobody is white. What is that? What does that say? You know, but I but I also think that that could also be manipulated. So <laughs> being in Boston, right. you know what I'm saying? It's like <laughs> that sounds really good on paper. But then, yeah, I just want to make sure to, to be clear of people listening to this conversation. Like, why would that be so interesting? Well, and and important is that the majority population in Boston are people of color. Right. And a lot of people do not know that or recognize that because the power structure has not rep- reflected that for decades and decades. But that, in fact, right. is where we are today. So that's where this conversation is, is coming from. All right. So I really want to talk about the representation that was all over the place at uh, uh, President Biden's inauguration, particularly the Latinx representation. And it began with the swearing in of uh, Kamala Harris by Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Let's take a listen. That I take this obligation freely. That I take this obligation freely. Without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. Without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. That I will well and faithfully discharge. That I will well and faithfully discharge. The duties of the office on which I am about to enter. The duties of the office upon which I am about to enter. So help me God. So help me God. Just a note that uh, Vice President Kamala Harris asked specifically for Sonia Sotomayor to do that duty. Also, singer Jennifer Lopez, I've said this already, you got to have people who can sing. She can sing. She performed at the inauguration. But she also included Spanish in her song um, and the translation of the Spanish at the beginning of uh, one of the songs was One Nation Under God, Indivisible with Liberty and Justice for All. So here she is singing in Spanish. The importance of representation in those moments. Julio? I, I, I love a good Sonia Sotomayor Bronx Puerto Rican accent. So anytime I she speaks, I I you know, I get really excited because, you know, she is uh she is a role model and being a Puerto Rican born person who lives in the Bronx, um, she represents. So I think it's just symbolic. And also, you know, good for J Lo. I wouldn't say that J Lo is an activist. But even speaking Spanish in that context felt to me in, in the world of J-Lo a little bit political and activist like um, sort of a little bit of response to the Trump administration in a way that J-Lo can, can do and, and kind of appeal to people. I think one of the things about Jennifer Lopez is that mainstream appeal where she is a Puerto Rican woman who has been able to play in different spaces 
both good and bad, right? Um, I we could have a J Lo conversation on any podcast, and I'm there. But I think it was symbolic. I think it it showed sort of this this message of inclusion that uh, especially uh, with Trump, and you know, I, I think it it speaks to when we just talked about you know record turnout of Latino voters. So I think this is we're starting to see sort of the the steps of power get you know this is just another step for Latino political power and good for J Lo and. And good for Sonia, you know, Bronx accents rule. <laughs> uh, Marcella, last word. <laughs> good for her for like showing up and, and representing. Yeah. Being her, you're right. It does bring, you know, the mainstream appeal or speaks to that. And, and you know, kind of like the Super Bowl thing, too, when she, you know, which obviously feels like right. ages ago, but it was just an, a year ago with her and Shakira. Um, so so it was it was good. It was good to see. And she looked amazing, too. All right. I like an upbeat ending it on the very least. And I thank you for joining me. <laughs> thank you, Callie. <laughs> Thanks, Callie. Julio Ricardo Varela is the digital editor for the Futuro Media Group, co-host of the In the Thick podcast and founder of Latino Rebels. Marcela Garcia is an editorial writer, columnist and board member at the Boston Globe. Coming up, traditional beauty standards have been shattered by husband and wife duo Karan and Regis Bethencourt. They've placed black beauty in all its historical and contemporary expressions on full display in their new book, Glory, Magical Visions of Black Beauty. The duo hopes to empower black children and to share the power and grace of black aesthetics. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. Glory, a word that radiates magnificence, is exactly what photographers Chiron and Regis Bethencourt wanted to depict in their new book, Glory, Magical Visions of Black Beauty. The book, a collection of more than 100 photos of black children from around the world, shatters traditional standards of beauty and showcases multiple expressions of black hair and black beauty. It comes at a time when the nation is grappling with issues of race and racism. The husband and wife duo behind Glory want the images and essays in the book to help black children recognize and celebrate themselves and other non-black readers to see the versatility and power of black beauty. Joining me remotely, Chiron and Regis Bethencourt. They are photographers and owners of Creative Soul Photography in Atlanta, Georgia, and authors of Glory, Magical Visions of Black Beauty. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having us. Hey, everybody. So glad to have you. Also with me, Shauna Thomason, owner and hairstylist at Red Mystique Art in Atlanta, who style the cover and other work in Glory. Thank you so much. So I just am so excited to talk to uh, all of you. Congratulations. This is a stunning book. Thank you. I mean, it really is a work of art. It really is. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's just. Thank you. I mean, if you never read a word, it's just beautiful just to turn the pages and, and look at it. But of course, you had a, a greater and a, and a bigger purpose for this, which we'll get into. But let me start this way, uh, Karen and uh, Regis. Karen, you can begin. Sure. You're well-known uh, children photographers. When did you decide to go from doing the kind of styling and work with those kinds of photos to really amping up to what is expressed here in the book, Glory? 
Yeah, so it was around 2017. Uh, we decided to do a project called the Afro Art Series. And that was our, our main goal originally was to showcase the beauty and versatility of Afro hair. Uh, we found that a lot of kids that we worked with uh, were sometimes either afraid of wearing their natural hair or, you know, a little bit worried about um, showing it at school. And so we wanted to just showcase it in a new light. And that series went viral. Uh, <laughs> everyone just really love that series and it morphed into something much more. Um, what we learned was that when we started photographing these kids, um, all of them had such unique and amazing stories. Uh, and so we wanted to really just highlight their stories as well. So Regis, the book is divided into three parts, past, present, and future. And what was your thinking about doing it that way? Just trying to link the history of our culture and trying to link those between each timeline because it's just important that our kids know our history and where they're going. Mm -hmm. And in thinking about past, present, and future, you were, in general, trying to speak back to the quote-unquote traditional beauty standards that a lot of people have embraced and are made to feel badly about it because they don't look like that. So would both of you sort of speak to that, Chiron and Regis? Yeah, so it was definitely important for us to be able to, you know, just really connect our kids with traditions of the past. A lot of times, some of those traditions are lost. And so it was our way of being able to showcase that in a new light. So for instance, when we uh, visited Kenya, we did, we paid homage to the Maasai tribe there. And the way that we did that was we incorporated traditional Maasai uh, fabrics and really made it into uh, modern clothing so that kids today could relate to that. So it was our way of really connecting the past to the present. Um, and then for the future, we like to be able to just imagine our own future <laughs> um, and imagine it the way that we would like. So um, we often uh, do themes of Afrofuturism and just really speaking to creative visions of what our future could, could look like. Okay. So let me turn to you, Shauna Anise Thomason, your stylist. You did the cover for Glory, which is fantastic. I mean, it's so beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so I wanted to ask, uh, how did you get involved with the Bethan Courts? So I got involved with these lovely two family members of mine. Um, <laughs> I'd say it, we're going on three years, and it Zoom passed because it doesn't even feel like it. It feels like we've known each other forever. But um, I started working with them almost three years ago. We were kind of communicating off and on on Instagram, but then she, uh, Karen had gave me a call and let me know that she wanted me to come in and style for one of the shoots. And from there, it kind of turned into what it is now. They can't get rid of me. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Right. <laughs> once we once we saw her work, we were never letting her go. <laughs> I, I cannot I can understand that looking at this photo. Yes. Shauna, a lot of people would not understand what styling means. So exactly what what do you do? The uh, child comes in and then take us from there. What what happens? OK, so we all kind of come together as a creative uh, unit to see where, of course, their vision is going to be for the overall shoot. And over time, they've come to trust me and kind of let me go into my creative bubble and um, build from there as far as the styling. When the young ladies or the young men come in, we always choose between who's going to go to makeup or who's going to go to hairstyling first. So when they come to me, it's just already knowing kind of where the vision or where the direction we're going in, depending on what the theme is for that particular shoot. So for example, with the cover, 
we didn't actually know, I didn't know that that actual picture was going to be chosen for the cover. So that was a theme, Afro-Victorian theme that we kind of squished together to create that and create the other images that came out with um, that one as well. One, I take into consideration what their hair texture is, and I want them to feel comfortable in their own skin, not that they're sitting in the chair for me to build them into some character that they're not. So I, I try to bring in their personality and feel their energy as well while I'm building or creating the hairpiece. One thing that we do, we love to incorporate the natural styling, of course, and our culture inside of what we're doing. So I do always use texture hair that is close enough to that particular client or that little person's hair texture, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, so that it looks like a hair piece that actually grew out of their head, yeah. even though it's, you know, creative and big and, um, you know, imaginative, it's, it's, it's something that looks like it could be there. Right. Yeah. So that's a big thing for me because I don't want them to feel like I have to put something that's opposite of what God already put on their head, mm -hmm. if that makes sense as well. No, it does. I just wanted to emphasize that when you say Afro-Victorian, you are doing what some people might call a mashup. Other people might say you're doing taking bits and pieces of each of those themes yes. and putting them together in a whole new way. It's a whole new vision, right? Yes. Of yes. Exactly. Because <laughs> even with looking at the like the 18th century to 16th century styling, it's so dope on its own. So when we come together and they're like, OK, Shauna, can you do this? I'm like, hey, can we do this? <laughs> right, yeah. right, and exactly. we put it all together <laughs> and you add our culture with that because back then, I mean, for obvious reasons, we couldn't pronounce ourselves and show how glorious we were in our own skin and with our hair. The African-Americans back then, they still had to wear head wraps and wear coverings and the wigs that they did put on them were opposite of what we are or what we represent. Right. So for me, it's just incorporating that. Mm -hmm. We're able to um, just tell our own stories. Um, and that's important for us. Um, exactly. It's to be able to tell our own stories the way that we would want to, to tell it. And so um, we're just doing that through photos, you know, the same way you would do for a movie. We're doing it through photos and, and doing it with uh, children, which is something that's unique. Well, it's definitely unique because m many people wouldn't work with children <laughs> right? <laughs> because <exactly>. it's hard <laughs> just to right, begin with. Right. <laughs> they have to have a, yeah. a it, it, in, in the process of when they do come to us, it is a very tedious process. Right. Most adults can't even sit, sit still and have the patience to deal with that. So time is of the F essence when we're, when we're doing all this as well. So let me go back to, as I said, there's a lot of good writing throughout this book uh, that supports these fantastic, beautiful, now we know how they're styled photos. And one of the things you say at the beginning, Beth and Courts, we didn't just want to question traditional beauty standards. We wanted to shatter them. Mm -hmm. And I want to explore this a little bit because... You know, hair is just such a volatile topic or can be mm -hmm. uh, in the African-American community because of always kind of pushing back against these traditional methods of beauty that don't actually fit us. So here's a couple of um, sad things that happened in the last couple of years that I want to get you all to respond to, mm -hmm. which will then um, have, a, a, I think, emphasize why something like uh, glory is, is really important in this moment. 
So a few years ago, the head writer for Sesame Street, his name is Joey Mazzarino, wrote a song for his daughter that he adopted, he and his wife, a five-year-old daughter at the time. Her name was Seji from Ethiopia. And the name of the song is I Love My Hair. Don't need a trip to the beauty shop, because I love what I got on top. It's curly and it's brown and it's right up there. You know what I love, that's right. My hair, I really love my hair. Now, I played that because at the time, um, obviously, Mr. Mazzarino is quite talented. Um, he was uh, getting some feedback, or his daughter was, and he wanted to support her and say, no, no, um, you don't have to look like mom and me. How you look is beautiful. And he had the talent to be able to write this. I remember uh, playing this for my niece, who was older at the time, and she said, wow, what this could have done, you know, for me and other kids when we were younger. So what this, what you're doing with these photos then really speaks to all of that. Yes, I was going to say we get so many um, parents that bring their kids in really because, you know, they want them to see what they see, right? They want them to see, um, you know, just how beautiful they are and how magical they are as they are. Um, and so many times, especially now with social media and, um, you know, this generation, um, they have so many outside pressures to look a certain way. For us, you know, we, whenever we try to do, we do our photos, we really try to make it something that's not only eye-catching, but something that kids will really just pick up on and that it would resonate with that generation because, you know, they can look on our Instagram and they can see these really cool photos of Black kids and say, hey, you know, I want to look like that too. <laughs> um, and that's something that we really haven't, haven't seen before. So many times it's been you know, you have to have your hair straightened or you have to have a certain skin tone or skin texture, you know, it's just, you know, we're, we're wanting them to be able to see an alternate version of what's been put out in the media so far. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with photographers Chiron and Regis Bethencourt and hairstylist Shauna Thomason. We're discussing the book Glory, Magical Visions of Black Beauty and the importance of putting black beauty front and center. I was looking at uh, page 39 in your book. Uh, it features Lala from Tennessee. Mm -hmm. She says at the end that uh, she told her mom at one point she wanted her hair straightened and wanted it to be yellow. But she said her mom taught me to love my hair and to love myself because God made us all unique and different. My hair makes me unique, so now I love it. I believe that what you hate about yourself is what draws people to you. That was pretty powerful. Pretty powerful story. Sometimes after the hair is it's everything else you know it's the confidence we have to sometimes you know inject the culture in because that's a big part of it too you know what I mean uh, these kids get teased every which way these days so man it's we have to come at these kids with everything we have to heal them you know what I mean Shauna and I was also going to add like a lot of the times some of the kids they they haven't been to a professional hairstylist or like a salon setting to get their hair done and somebody actually speak certain dialogue to them about their hair texture or about their scalp or about, 
you know, just things about their hair other than, you know, the parents teaching them, you know, be happy with, you know, God created you perfect. Like you don't have to change anything about you. So a big thing for me, and I have eight kids and all of my girls have different textures of hair. So in being a mom at home and then transferring and being a mom when I have these other little ones sitting in a chair, it's a big deal for them to understand and feel that love that somebody you know, random is telling them the same thing that their mom and their dad is telling them like, hey, like your hair is great. Like you can do so much with it. And then once I'm done, they can see, wow, I didn't even know <laughs> my hair could do that. <laughs> yes, uh, it's it's a, it's very it's very powerfully positive. I wanted to pick up, Shauna, from what you said, because of the power of the stylist and the and the hairdresser and, and, and being able to feedback in a positive way. So I wanted to play this other clip, which was so heartbreaking. I know you all are familiar with it. It went viral for um, last year, March 2020. This is Atlanta-based hairdresser Shabria Redmond speaking to four-year-old Ariana. She was styling her hair at the time. Light I'm so ugly. <gasps> what? Don't say that. Don't say that. Don't say that. You are so pretty. You, when you look at yourself, you supposed to say, I'm so pretty. You are so pretty. Do you hear me? You are too cute. Ariana, oh, you gonna make me cry. Oh my God. Ariana. You are so pretty. You are like, you have this beautiful chocolate skin. Baby girl, you are beautiful. Black is beautiful. And if don't nobody ever tell you, I will tell you, you are gorgeous. That just, you know, got me and so many other people. That makes me cry yeah. right now every time I hear it. I know. <laughs> so I know you all had to have, uh, maybe if you didn't, you didn't have this in the back of your minds, but just pushing against that with this beautiful book and these um, these children who have great stories to tell along with their photos, it's pretty powerful, Karen. It is. And, you know, every time I hear that uh, clip, that clip, I think, resonated for so many reasons. Number one, I think um, it's, you know, what so many of us feel. And, and from early on, you know, you get, and, and it's amazing that this four-year-old little girl felt that way. You know, you wouldn't think that that early she would have those type of feelings, but it was something that, you know, a lot of Black women can relate to that, you know, they feel like they're not enough or that their hair is not good enough, that their skin tone is not pretty enough. And so in that moment, I think we all felt, uh, <laughs> you know, who we felt that little girl. Um, and then the other thing that I, I thought about when with that clip was that, you know, the power of that connection between client and stylist, uh, you know, sometimes at, at the beauty salon, you know, there she was, you know, consoling her and, and uplifting her and, you know, telling her how beautiful she was. And a lot of times that's what we do in our work. They come in and, you know, they may feel self-conscious about their looks and or their hair. And a lot of times we're really pouring into them um, from the time they get into Shauna's chair to when they're getting styled. And during the shoot, we're all just kind of uplifting their spirit so that they can see just how beautiful they are inside and out. Regis, is there is there a story that you can recall of a of one of the children that you all have styled and photographed and you know just watching them have a you know beautiful reaction to seeing themselves as you've styled them and and taking a picture of them? Yeah, the Nyla was a good one. The picture of the little girl with the um, wound up um, thing in her back. <laughs> it was a point in that shoot when somebody took a picture of her on their phone and then and he showed her the picture. 
of how she looks and she was just her jaw dropped and like for a kid to have that kind of reaction i've never seen anything like that you know you know visual representation is is like everything um it's something that we lack for years and as much healing as these kids need we need to be hitting them every which way as we can like which i'm so happy that we have movies we have um, books and everything so like i'm, I'm very happy as in the direction we're heading with um visual representation because you can't you can't imagine yourself being something if you don't see it visually you know what i mean um and i think that's really important with kids mm -hmm. That picture of Nyla, if you guys have the book, uh, Nyla is actually the youngest kid that we had in the book. Uh, so I think she was about three at that time. Mm. And so to see a three-year-old look at the back of the camera and um, to see her jaw drop the way that it did <laughs> was just, I, we, we all kind of right. had chills at that moment. We all were like, oh my gosh, like for her to see herself and, you know. <laughs> yeah, I went, I went home and watched that video like 10 times. <laughs> well, you all must, you must feel something then to to know that you are significantly impacting lives. I mean, this is a formative years for these kids. Yeah. So this is something they're going to, it's going to stay with them. For sure. That's actually one of the reasons why I like working with kids. <laughs> like we're just doing what we love. But I mean, honestly, I don't really notice that. I don't, I don't think about the impact until after I see it. But yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's like one of the reasons why I love what, 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 we, what we do. Um, Shauna, I was... Uh, Noting and looking at what you did on the cover and, and, and also looking at the other photos inside, a lot of what's in Glory, uh, Magical Visions of Black Beauty, reminded me of the hair and the styling and Jingle Jangle, the Netflix movie. Oh, my God. <laughs> we talk about that ever since, ever since that movie came out. I'm like, hey, did you guys see that movie? <laughs> so I don't know if they borrowed from you or whatever, because I was thinking, wow, this kind of looks very close to what I saw in Glory. Yes, I said, well, whatever it was, whatever it was, we're here for it. Yeah, we're definitely here for it. <laughs> right, we're here for it. That's an awesome compliment. Like we, That's the thing. I think we all like to see where our imagination can go. And that's why we flow so well together, because we feed off of each other's energy and we feed off of, like our creativity has no boundaries. It just the boundary or the line is only how far the little one will let us go. And that's why I said that time and patience kind of, you know, levels out where we can go. But even I, I don't I don't know. I, I love it. I, I love the creativity part. I love the fact that they trust me to be able to um, be that extra puzzle piece to add on to their vision and to kind of do my thing. But I, I would, this is the best part of this. It's, it's so much fun. Like it's not work at all. We all enjoy just being there and like, Hey, add this, <laughs> add this. Hey, it's, it's so much fun. Yeah, we, we definitely feed off of each other's uh, energy. Like I don't want to disappoint my wife and I don't want to disappoint Shauna after she oh. had that nice hairstyle. <laughs> I definitely don't. I definitely don't either. And every, every time we come together, we're challenging ourselves to do something better than we did before. So it's like, you're only as good as your last cut. So we try to do better than that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so awesome. <laughs> well, last question to, to all of you. I think this is, this book is more than a book. It feels like more than a project. It, it feels like, legacy that you, you know, you pass it on and that it will become something that's uh, treasured in families and passed on to other families. Is that how you feel about it? 
Uh, I'll start with you, Shanna. The one thing that resonates with me with capturing moments with photos, my husband and I had a son that passed away at seven weeks. He would be six this year. And we took a million photos. When I say a million photos, I mean a million photos. And to be able to look back whenever, um, just to get that feeling of loving on him and him physically being here helps me with how this book is going to be for generations to come because a lot of families don't have the visuals. Like I can't go back to certain visuals to say, hey, what did my great grandmother look like other than the pictures when she got older and her kids or, you know, aunts and uncles, her sisters and brothers took photos, but there's not a lot. So I feel like with this book and what Karen and Reg are doing um, and allowing me to be a part of that is having images where you're, you're, you're capturing moments of life that you can't get back, but they show a timeline and they show a culture that without those visual images, you would never know anything about. And I take that to heart, like severely. And I, that's a really, really awesome thing for kids to have and their parents to have and you know, years and years when we're all gone and you have that to see. Beth and Courts? So yeah, for me, really just having the opportunity, you know, I would love our legacy to be having the opportunity to tell the world about the Black excellence that exists in our youth. You know, we, when you look at this book, there's an eight-year-old neuroscience expert, you know, there's um, a little girl in South Africa who protested against being able to wear, she wanted to be able to wear her own natural hair in school. And, you know, just to see the wide spectrum that we have in the Black community and to be able to kind of put that up against the um, I guess the existing narrative that was portrayed in the media and to be able to have that around for people to really be able to see, you know, the excellence that we had in our generation is something that I would like for our legacy to be for years to come. Yeah. And it is important for our youth to not only, you know, understand their history and traditions, but to find like innovative ways to carry out the legacy so that our culture lives on, you know what I mean? I do indeed. And um, I will say that glory is glorious. And I thank you all for joining me. Thank you so much for having us. Oh, thank you for having us. Appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Karen and Regis Bethencourt are photographers and owners of Creative Soul Photography in Atlanta, Georgia, and authors of Glory, Magical Visions of Black Beauty. Shauna Thomason is the owner and hairstylist at Red Mystique Art in Atlanta, who styled the cover and other work in glory. Well, that's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're on the web at gbh.org, news under the radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Hannah Ubele and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.